you know, the old covenant is when you had one man that had a stick that turned into a snake. And he would get before the people and, the, and, the, and he said, you know, how are they going to know that God sent me? And so he would do certain miracle signs. And the people would look and say, okay, God's with you. And like Elijah, when Elijah said, well, who, who's God, Baal or God? And they, they didn't know. They kind of stood there and he said, okay. And then they had the famous offering there where the Baal priest cut themselves and nothing happened. And then Elijah gave his little 18-second prayer. Boom, fire came down. And they went, oh, Elijah, Elijah, which means the eternal is God. Eternal is God. They were saying Elijah's name over, but they meant the eternal is God. So they saw that. But in the New Covenant... You see, you, you're, you don't have to have somebody stand up here and do a sign, say, you know, I'm a magician and, and do something. Christ said, an evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign. You have God's Spirit. And so when you read the Bible and you put that together, you know, you have the words of God written on your heart. And when someone stands up before you and tries to tell you something that the shepherd of the Bible does not agree with, you hear those words and you say, you know, he looks like the shepherd, but I don't recognize the voice, and so you don't move. But in fact, if you read the lettering, it's, it's more like, you, you know, the, you really aren't here because you are upset. You're here because I've deceived you. And again, I'll ask again, how many of you in this room have I called, talked to, asked to come to Bible study? I mean, I've met new people today. You know, no one. So, but at the same time, I've heard reports of, People uh, at Pasadena, even Mr. Dekach himself, calling members and, you know, you know, putting the pressure on them to, uh, to not leave. That if you leave, that somehow you're leaving, uh, which is un uh, hard to believe because you can be a Baptist and be, you know, saved. You can be, you know, a Methodist and be okay. You can go to church any day that you want to, but we do it because of tradition on Saturday because, you know, we've been doing it for a long time. You keep a day holy yourself by praying, studying, and worshiping. Mr. DeCott said more Christians are in Sunday-keeping churches than in Sabbath-keeping churches. Therefore, on Sunday, more people are worshiping God. Therefore, Sunday would have to be more holy than the Sabbath. I mean, if you start following some of these reasonings through, and yet there's only one thing that you cannot do and be a Christian, and that is keep the Sabbath and keep the holy day. That's the only thing you cannot do. You can, you can do anything else and be considered a Christian. Now, we're being tolerated right now, but if you study history, you will find that that stops after a few years. Just like with the Bible study we gave about the uh, Smyrna and Polycarp and Polycrates and the bishop at Rome. They tolerated one another during the time of Polycrates, sorry, Polycarp, and then about 35 years later when Polycrates came up, no way, Jose. They were disfellowshipped. And then it was about another hundred years later when the beast came on the scene, Constantine had, you know, this, this, this beast, and then the woman was able to straddle the beast and get on and had enough authority and power to then punish you for actually keeping the Sabbath. And then the, the edict was issued at the Council of Laodicea that says you must not Judaize by resting on the Sabbath, but must work on that day. So it's interesting, you know, that's not being said yet. But nevertheless, you are being persecuted, and the only criteria for you not being a Christian is keeping the Sabbath and the Holy Days, and it's an it's a amazing, amazing situation. Well, it is a very special day, a Sabbath day, a high day, last day of unleavened bread. <clears throat> we were talking last night at the dinner table about recounting Passover, 
the tenth day when they took the lamb up and watched it, and then the fourteenth when they killed it, and the night to be observed, and so forth, and the traveling that they did. And then they, they poised on this day at the Red Sea with darkness behind them. Egypt was in, in darkness because God had caused a cloud to come down. They were in darkness. The Israelites were in light. And then the sea opened up, and they crossed through, and they left Egypt uh, forever. They never saw those Egyptians again, and they came out the other side. And they were told to rehearse that every year. They were told to do it every single year. Now, it's not a substitute for Jesus Christ. It pictures Jesus Christ. But we know that Israel turned loose of that after a while. They stopped doing it. We know today people who say that they believe that they are Christians, they believe in the Passover lamb, they believe in Jesus Christ, um, and they're fine people. As a result, their, their lives are better. Just like if you followed Buddha, you would be better than you would be an atheist because Buddha has some good teachings. It tells you not to rob your neighbor, tells you to honor your parents and so forth. It's better than not having any teachings at all. So those who follow Jesus Christ are going to be probably pretty good neighbors. But that doesn't mean that God has called them. Now, as we look at these religions, we realize that they have turned loose, probably better stated, they never had the holy days. They never had this day. Now, we're supposed to preach meet in due season. So it sounds like we're preaching a lot on the holy days, uh, and that's true because right now we're in the middle of them. But what are some of the fruits of turning loose of the holy days? Well, one of the fruit is that they worship on Sunday, and they have the argument, and they say that Jesus Christ was resurrected on Sunday. Let's go to John chapter 20 and verse 1. <clears throat> John chapter 20. And we'll see that there was a very important event that took place during the days of unleavened bread. And if Christians today were to be keeping the holy days with their focus on Jesus Christ, because that's where your focus should be, not on ancient Israel. There are lessons to learn from ancient Israel. There's lessons to learn about going through the Red Sea. But the Red Sea isn't the ultimate thing that you go through. The ultimate and what all that pointed to was what? The baptismal waters. When you go into the grave and you leave the old man, the dead Egyptians on the other side, if you will. So you have to have Christ involved in all of the holy days because they certainly uh, uh, picture that. Verse uh, 1, the first day of the week comes Mary. It was yet dark to the sepulcher and, and uh, you know, they use this scripture and others like it to say that Jesus Christ was resurrected on Sunday morning that Christ was resurrected, and somehow that let everyone know that, uh, that there was a new Sabbath, there was a new day, there was a new age coming on, and, and it's very, very vague there. But they use that say, now Jesus Christ was resurrected on Sunday. Now, why was this Sunday mentioned? I know we've had other accounts, but we want to go through why this Sunday is mentioned, during the days of unleavened bread, why does he take the time to say on the first day of the week? Why doesn't he just say, well, you know, Mary and Mary and, and um, uh, the other girl, I can't remember her name, uh, showed up and, and early in one morning. But why does it specifically say on the first day of the week? Now, this is during the days of unleavened bread. So we have to read the whole account. Is this some sort of a vague attempt to get across to the world that the entire day of worship has been changed. Well, I think we'll see that, uh, that that is not true. So we'll find out why the first day of the week is mentioned in conjunction with the resurrection. 
Let's look now at Luke 23, verse 44. We'll be turning to this a lot of scriptures, and I, uh, I kind of like that, really. I'd rather let the Bible do, do the talking, if you will. But Luke chapter 23, we start getting into an account. We have to ask ourselves, well, when was Christ resurrected? Because this is a very foundational argument. So many of your churches will say, Jesus Christ started the church on Sunday. See, they're referring to who? To what? Pentecost. And Christ was resurrected on Sunday. Therefore, we need to worship on Sunday. Now, when was he resurrected? Well, before we can find that out, we have to find out when he died. See, we have to find out when he died. Let's, let's look here in verse 44 of Luke 23. It was about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over all the earth until the ninth hour, and the sun was darkened, and the veil of the temple was rent in the midst, or torn in two. A couple of things need to be discussed here. We know this is when Christ died because in other scriptures, Christ gave up his spirit with a loud voice and at that instant, the veil of the temple was torn in two. So he died at the sixth hour. Now, what is the sixth hour? Okay, the time was counted. Six o'clock in the morning was, was zero. Seven o'clock in the morning was hour one. Eight o'clock was hour two. Hour three was nine o'clock in the morning. And we find that where? In Pentecost, don't we? Nine o'clock in the morning, it says, you guys are all drunk. When the Spirit came and they began to speak in other tongues, and they said, you guys are all drunk. And Peter said, no, it's only the third hour in the King James Version, the third hour of the day. It was nine o'clock in the morning. So you see, third hour was nine o'clock in the morning. Fourth hour is 10. Fifth hour is 11. Sixth hour is noon. Seventh hour is one. Eighth hour is two. Ninth hour is three. And then you come all the way around and to six o'clock is the twelfth hour. So from the sixth hour, noon, high noon, until three o'clock, there was darkness over the whole earth. Now why? Why was there darkness over the whole earth? To partially fulfill a scripture. Now we'll come back here. You might put a little spot there. But let's go to Amos chapter 8. Amos chapter 8. And we find that part of this scripture was fulfilled. Now this is important because at times we are told that we've been told that Jesus Christ fulfilled the law. He fulfilled the law and the prophets. In other words, he fulfilled all of it. Now, he didn't fulfill all of it because we talked last week there's a lot more to come. But he did fulfill part of it. And he gives us an explanation, which we'll see just in a moment. But in Amos chapter 8, and in verse 9, it says, <clears throat> It will come to pass in that day, says the Lord God, that I will cause the sun to go down at noon and I will darken the earth in the clear day. And then he goes on, and here was this feast day, you know, during the days of unleavened bread, and what happens? Verse 10, well, I'll turn your feasts into mourning and your songs into lamentations, and I'll bring sackcloth upon all your loins and baldness upon every head, and I'll make it as you're like mourning for your only son, as in the end as of a bitter day. So here was a time, you know, when we look back, it's not Good Friday. You know, they talk about the day that Christ was crucified as Good Friday. It was a bad day. You know, it was a bad day. Christ died. The Son of God was killed for your sins and mine. But here is a prophecy. Now, does that mean that the prophecies talking about at the end time are fulfilled about 
remember we sing a song. It talks about darkness at noonday and, and it'll be one day to God. Let's look back in Isaiah 61 because here is an important principle that Jesus Christ points out as far as prophecy is concerned. And if we're going to live by every word of the Bible, we need to understand, you know, the scriptures. We need to understand prophecy. So we're just taking a little digression here, <clears throat> but we know that Christ died at three. It was dark from noon to three, and that was prophesied. But look at Isaiah 61, verse 1. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has appointed me, or sorry, anointed me to preach good tidings, or the gospel, unto the meek. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives in the opening of the prison to them that are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all that mourn, and it goes through and talks all about the last part of verse 3, um, and they shall build the old wastes, and they'll raise up the former desolations. Well, boy, that's the world tomorrow. Verse 5, strangers will stand and feed your flocks, and the sons of the alien will be your plowmen and vine dressers, but you'll be named the priests of the Lord. And uh, verse 7, you'll, because of the shame that you went through, you'll have double, like a firstborn inheritance. Verse 8, uh, I, the Lord, love judgment. I hate robbery for burnt offering. I direct their work in truth, and I'll make an everlasting covenant with them, and their seed will be known among the Gentiles. This is a big, long prophecy. There's a lot of stuff in there. But if we go back to um, um, where Christ spoke this, Luke 4, starting in verse 18, we find a very interesting thing happens. And this is, this is important when we start to look at prophecies because Christ did fulfill many of the prophecies of the Old Testament. And he probably fulfilled all of them, but not all of them totally. In other words, he, he had a piece in every prophecy, but not the whole prophecy has been totally fulfilled. So here Christ, <clears throat> many people feel this is around his 30th birthday, possibly even the Feast of Trumpets, but that's just conjecture. Uh, he's already met Satan. He's conquered Satan. He met him in the wilderness. And then we find uh, he returns in the power of God. In verse 15, he taught in their synagogues. Verse 16, he came to Nazareth where he'd been brought up. And as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he stood up for to read. And he didn't ask for this book, but again, God worked it out. It was delivered to him the book of the prophet Isaiah. Now, when he gets Isaiah... He opens the book and he, you know, he unrolls it till he finds the place where it is written in what we call Isaiah 61, verse 1. And he starts reading. Now, now, we read that whole account, didn't we? I mean, kind of breeze through it and there's a lot of stuff there. But he says, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives, well, do you think Christ preached to every captive there was? No, he's talking about captives of sin. And recovering sight of the blind to set at liberty those that are bruised, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. You remember what the rest of the verse says? And the year of vengeance, or the day of vengeance. But look, he stopped. Verse 20, he closed the book and he gave it to the minister. He sat down and everybody was looking at him. Why? Because he didn't read the rest of the verse. He stops right in the middle and, and you know, they all knew what it was. They knew what the verse was going to say. They were waiting for the year of the Lord, day of the Lord, because they wanted the day of the Lord. Why? To get rid of the Romans. 
So he sits down there going, well, what? you know, there's not even a comma there. He just stopped right in the middle of it. And he says in verse 21, he began to say unto them, this day, this scripture is fulfilled in your ears. Now, what got fulfilled? He'd been anointed. He was preaching the gospel. He was healing the blind. He was letting people go who'd been, remember the girl who's been over with, with uh, uh, arthritis or something and bound, and one, one had been possessed by a demon for years, and he said, this woman bound by Satan these 18 years, and he lays hands on her and she's free. But also, he was freeing captives of sin. But did he proclaim the day of the Lord? Well, no. He's not come back yet. Did he, say, did he have them start rebuilding the waste places and setting up the millennium? Well, well, no. Did he appoint you know, those to be ministers of righteousness and so forth? Well, no. See, there's only part of the scripture got fulfilled, the first part. So to say that Christ fulfilled that scripture is true. To say that he totally fulfilled it is not true. To say Christ will fulfill the scripture that says he will come to this earth is true. But to say he totally fulfilled it is not true because he's got to come back again. So there's a first advent and there's a second. Or first, first coming, there's a second coming. So the same thing with the sun being darkened at noon and going down until 3 o'clock happened then. But there is another time that it's going to happen when Christ returns. See? So this is important to understand because at times you'll stumble across information you will say, Christ fulfilled that scripture. Christ fulfilled that scripture. That's all done away with. That's fulfilled, done, sealed, finished, and that's just simply not true. Okay, let's go back then to, uh, <clears throat> now to Matthew chapter 12. We'll go back to our story, Matthew 12 and verse 40. <clears throat> so, it's in, uh, <clears throat> important. Um, see, everything, almost everything is dual in the prophecy. Even like when the sun went down at noon, and stayed down and was dark, and then it came back up. What's the day of the Lord? You remember the feast sermons we've had on Feast of Trumpets? It's a day of darkness, of gloominess. You know, the day, you know, the, the, day will, uh, the sun will turn to blood and all that sort of thing. You know, some poetic language talking about being dark, though. It's going to be dark. Now, what also happens on Feast of Trumpets? Some of our friends will be resurrected, right? Hopefully we will be changed. Well, isn't it interesting that when it got dark, when Christ was killed, there was an earthquake, there was rumblings, and there were saints resurrected to physical life, but they were resurrected. They walked around, they came into Jerusalem, it says. Many of the saints that slept showed up because it was a witness to Christ's resurrection. Is that the only resurrection? You know what? Some people taught that because Paul had to address that and that's why the whole 15th chapter of Corinthians is written. Because some said that the resurrection was already past. And they were overthrowing the faith of some. And he said, no. No. And then he goes through and he gives 1 Corinthians 15. It says the last trump and the twinkling of an eye and those that are alive will be changed. And he has to go through that whole system there and talk about the order of resurrection. But those men and women who are resurrected on that day of darkness... That was just a type of what's to come. They were only resurrected to physical life, and they lived out, you know, whatever, 10, 15, 20 years, whatever it was, and then they died. But it's only a type of what's to come. 
at what is to come. So Christ doesn't fulfill all of these things, and that's very important because there's an entire group of doctrines, brethren, that is built on that foundation, that Christ fulfilled the law and the prophets. And when you chop that trunk down, and it comes down, all of those other peripheral branches collapse too. You don't have to go out here and snip those branches off. You just cut the old trunk of the tree down. So, uh, okay, now back where we were. Matthew chapter 12. <clears throat> I'll get there in a minute. I almost had a heart attack this morning. I could not find my old Bible. I put it in a drawer, and I just was, oh, I left it someplace, and anyway, I found it. Okay, when, uh, when was Christ resurrected? Okay, he died around 3 o'clock. We find in uh, 12 verse 40, it says, As Jonah was three days and three nights in the whale's belly, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So Christ would be three days and three nights in the grave. Not half a day, not part of a day, three days and three nights. So that's how long he's buried. But we don't know how long he's going to be dead. Well, look at uh, Mark 8, verse 31. Now there's going to be a difference here. Mark chapter 8, and in verse 31, he began to teach them, the disciples, that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected of the elders and of the chief priests, the scribes, and killed, and after three days rise again. So Christ would be dead, and it wouldn't be until after three days. So when three days are up, it's after three days. If it's not, it can't be after three days. So how can both be if there's, say, three hours difference? Christ dies around three. They hustle around. They finally get him in the tomb just before sundown. There has to be this time period. But Christ res was resurrected precisely when he died, three days and three nights later. Now, I won't go into the Wednesday and, and Sunday and, and all of the theories there, but basically Christ died in the middle of the week, Wednesday. Now, there's a prophecy in Daniel chapter 9. Let's go back and look at that. Daniel chapter 9 of when Jesus Christ would die. It's a little clear in the New International Version, so I'm going to read, read it uh, there. Daniel chapter 9. <clears throat> Daniel had prayed this, and it's a very good prayer to read whenever you have an opportunity. Um, it starts in about verse 4 and runs through verse 19. It's an outstanding prayer talking about the sins and faults of Israel. And he wondered when the temple would be rebuilt and he'd ask different questions. And, and the, um, the answer comes in verse 26. After 62 sevens, we won't get into all the years and all of that, but the anointed one will be cut off and have nothing. The people of the ruler who come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end will come like a flood. Well, again, we know from duality of prophecy, the end didn't come, but it came to Jerusalem, sort of, all wiped it all out and everything, but it's got to come again. War will continue until the end, and desolations have been decreed. He will confirm the covenant with many for one seven, or for seven years. See, Christ is confirming the covenant. And we've talked about that, and we will get into sermons about what the difference is between the Old and the New Covenant. 
but he will confirm the covenant for seven years. But in the middle of that seven, he will put an end to the sacrifice and the offering. So halfway through, Christ preached for three and a half years. We know that. He was about 30. He was about 33 and a half when he died. That's three and a half years. We don't know when the other three and a half will take place. Perhaps that will take place upon his return. We're not sure. But in the middle of that week, he's cut off. Now, a couple of things happen. One, he's killed. He's cut off. But two, somehow, it's not said here, somehow he causes the sacrifice and the offerings, these washings and so forth, to stop. But see, when we see Christ's sacrifice, we understand, oh, well, there is no more sacrifice. You don't need to offer animals. You don't need to do these washings and so forth. But he's confirmed the covenant for the first three and a half years. And then in the last three and a half years, when, of course, Israel brought out of slavery, he will confirm the covenant with them again. Now, he's resurrected precisely when he died. He stayed inside of the grave until three days and three nights precisely when he was buried. So he was resurrected. He stayed in there until about sundown around Saturday afternoon. And, you know, it's very true. It has to be true or else you don't really have a Savior because he said these were signs. He said, like Jonah, three days and three nights. I will be dead three days and three nights. It's not just the resurrection. Lazarus was resurrected, but the three days and three nights were the sign. But why was he hanging around Sunday morning? Well, something very special was to take place and let's go to Leviticus chapter 23. Days of unleavened bread. The feast of the first fruit. Well, the feast of first fruits is Pentecost, but the days of unleavened bread and the feast of first fruits tie together because they, um, they, you can't really have one without the other. They are definitely tied together, but there's a time period there that the harvest takes place, but Christ begins, and he cannot begin the harvest until he makes sure that we are acceptable. Leviticus chapter 23 <clears throat> introduces, uh, first of all, the feast of the Lord in verse 2, uh, speak unto the children of Israel and say unto them concerning the feast of the Lord, you'll proclaim holy convocations, these are my feasts, and then he gives you six days to stick the feast into. Uh, you know, gives you an idea of the six, the 7,000 year plan, the 6,000 years that man is in now, and the seventh 1,000 year period of the millennium. So verse 6, I'm sorry, verse 3, is where you get the feast days, because there is the Ten Commandments, and so where do the feast days come from? They are statutes that are tied to the fourth commandment. So whenever he gives the statutes of the feast, he has to give the law, the fourth commandment, because it is that's where you get it, see? That's where you get it. If you were going to give a whole bunch of sex sins, probably what you would do is say, you will not commit adultery, and then give a, a sub-list of other things that, that tie into that. Those would be statutes. So he first of all gives the fourth commandment, verse 3, six days you'll work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of rest, a holy convocation. You'll do no work. This is the Sabbath of the Lord in all your dwellings. Then we kind of branch off over here and cover the statutes. Verse 4, these are the feasts, holy convocations. You'll proclaim them in their seasons. Now, there's a reason that they're in their seasons. I didn't bring it up here. I'll read it in the afternoon sermon. This, uh, I, one of the uh, evangelists in the church said, 
that uh, by having them in certain seasons, that makes that shows that they basically had their origin in paganism as well, because the pagans kept feasts in their seasons in those harvest festivals. So uh, you, you'll be surprised when you hear uh, that letter. I'll share it with you a little later. <clears throat> so it's important that they're in their sequence or in their seasons because of the sequence. Then verse 5, the Passover. Verse 6, the 15th day is the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Seven days you must eat unleavened bread. The first day you'll have a holy convocation. And uh, verse 8, you'll offer an offering made by fire to the Lord seven days. And in the seventh day is a holy convocation, which is today. But in that time period, something else happened. Verse 9, the Lord spoke to Moses, said, Now, you don't need to do it yet, he says. Speak to the children of Israel, say to them, When you come into the land, which I give you, you will reap the harvest thereof. So they couldn't do this wandering in the wilderness. But when they got into the land, you're going to reap this harvest. Now, then you will bring then. Now, what then means is not when you reap the harvest afterward, but when you get into the land, I want you to bring me a wave sheep offering before you start the harvest. Now, bring me a wave sheep of the first fruits of your harvest to the priest. He will wave the sheep before the Lord to be accepted for you. Now, when's he do it? On the morrow after the Sabbath, the priest will wave it, and he'll offer it that day, and then he offers also a lamb without blemish. And he actually holds this up, and he waves this. And then, verse 15, you will count to you from the day, actually it means on the day, um, from the morrow after the Sabbath, on the day that you brought the sheep of the wave offering, seven complete Sabbaths. Verse 16, and then the morrow after the seventh Sabbath, you'll number, uh, in other words, you've numbered 50 days, you'll offer a new meat offering to the Lord, you'll bring out of your habitations two wave loaves of two tenths, they'll be fine flour, but they will be baked with leaven. And that's us. See, the, the days of unleavened bread do tie in with the feast of the first fruit, because after the Passover, Christ was the first fruit. He had no sin, no leavening. That's why it was just pure grain that was weighed. It was weighed Sunday morning, the first Sunday morning after the first Saturday after Passover. So if Passover was on Wednesday, then Saturday, then Sunday morning, this is when they went out. And the harvest was just getting ready to begin. So they went out and they cut that and they made that presentation. They weighed that. Now, they would begin to harvest at that time. And this is when the church, see, God, God is talking about working with people. And then as we get to Pentecost, or Feast of the first fruits, it's at the end of the harvest, see? And so you've got these, these loaves that have leaven in them, because we have sin. But, of course, you know, God has forgiven our sin, but still, if we say we have no sin, we're liars. So these, leaven, these loaves are, are held up and waved. And then that shows that we have been accepted and we are part of that first fruit. So there's this harvest that takes place. They wave the, the, the sheaf to the four winds. They wave the loaves to the four winds. And then in the harvest of the Bible, it talks about that they will be harvested from the four winds. Now, there's a small feast, but then there's this huge, enormous feast that we know as the Feast of Tabernacles. And that takes place, of course, at the, uh, at the end of the time. Let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 15 now. Paul had to address the false doctrine that the resurrection was already past. He had to address this. 
and then there were also those who said there will be no resurrection. It was, it was quite a mess. False doctrine spread rather rapidly. <clears throat> Chapter 15, he does recount here in verse 4 that Christ was buried and he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. So it wasn't a day and a half or whatever. I remember asking my dad this. We were picking up a load of wild horses in, uh, in Nevada. And I asked him about it. And I said, uh, I said Dad, what, what do you think about, you know, how long was Christ supposed to be buried? And he said, well, it seems like he said three days and three nights. I said, well, what do you think about that? And, and my dad had gone to Calvary Church and so forth. And he said, well, the way I figured it, he only missed it by about a day and a half. To him, it was no big deal, you know, but, uh, you know, a day and a half, you know, you get 50% right anyway. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, <clears throat> we're talking here about the resurrection. And in verse 20, it says, Now is Christ risen from the dead, and he's become the first fruits of them that slept. Now by man came death, by Adam, by man also came the resurrection of the dead, because as in Adam all die, see, all of us die because of Adam's sin. Now, we die for our own sin as well, but even if you were perfect, if you never sinned, your body would still wear out and die, because death entered in through Adam. But as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all will be made alive. Now, Christ is the second Adam, so if you come to Christ, you become converted, Christ is uh, your high priest. Another analogy is he's the shepherd, he's the rock, he's the first fruit, he's the little lamb. There's a lot of analogies, but he's also the second Adam, which means he's your father. Now, that doesn't mean the Trinity, but that's one of the reasons that in the um, uh, Messiah record, uh, they're quoting, I think, Isaiah 9, 6 or something, where it says, the mighty God, the everlasting father, that doesn't mean, that's not talking about a trinity situation. Again, that's part of his role. He is the second Adam. Adam's our father. You know, he's the new Adam. So in one way, he's our father as well. But that doesn't mean there's not God the father either. Just like, you know, he's a shepherd or he's a rock or, or whatever. We're the bride. We're the mother. You know, so again, we don't want to get too carried away with the analogies, but nevertheless. But verse 23, but every man in his own order, Christ the first fruits. Afterward, they that are Christ at his coming. Then comes the end. Now, he doesn't go into the end there about what all will happen there, but he is talking about the resurrection. He says, every man will come back to life, but in their own order. And then he says, Christ, first fruits, those that are his, at his uh, return, and then, then comes the end. The traditional Christianity has no idea what that means. Because what do they say? Well, when you die, you go to heaven. Well, they say, yeah, but what about the scripture says resurrection? Uh, well, you go to heaven and then you get a body later. I mean, they really don't know. There's hard, it's hard for them to explain because they turned loose of the holy days.
They don't have any understanding of the time order. And just like with the wave sheaf offering, because they don't keep the, the uh, holy days and they don't keep the Feast of Unleavened Bread, they don't know why Christ showed up Sunday morning. They think he showed up early there to try to somehow convince us that Sunday was now the acceptable day. So each was in his own order. Christ, then those that are Christ that he's coming, that would be the loaves of bread baked with leaven, but also a fine flour, just a couple of loaves. But then comes the end when there's this huge harvest that takes place. Um, James points that out in, uh, you might jot this down, James 5, verse 7, it talks about the early and the latter rain. So Christ then, let's go back to John 20, points out something here in John chapter 20. Was Christ waiting around so that somehow by his example, people would read this and hear the story much many years later and sort of figure out that Christ was somehow trying to show them that they should meet on Sunday, that they should get together on Sunday morning. <clears throat> so John, chapter 20, verse 1, the first day of the week comes Mary. There were two other women with, him, with her, plus others. When it was yet dark, so it was already dark, the sepulcher and the stone had already been taken away, so Christ was already gone come Sunday morning. Now, Verse 11, Mary stood outside the sepulcher weeping and she looked down into the sep uh, sepulcher and, and she saw uh, a couple angels and they talked with her a little bit. In verse 14, when she had said this, she turned herself back and she saw Jesus standing there, but she didn't know it was Jesus. And he said, woman, why are you weeping? Whom do you seek? And she thought he was a gardener. And she said, well, if you've taken him out of here, tell me where you've laid him and I'll take him away. And he said, Mary, and of course then she recognized him. And verse 17, it says, touch me not, or other translations, don't hold on to me, for I've not yet ascended to my father. But I do go to my, my father. You go to my brothers and you tell them I go to your father and my father. So he was about to be presented to God as the wave sheaf offering. And once God looked at him, and we'll get into those scriptures here shortly, once God looked at him, then he accepted the loaves. He accepted the heart. Let the harvest begin. And then the church began. And, and it began, you know, the, with only 120. And when we got to day of Pentecost, guess what happens? There's only a little 120 loaves held up. You know, only, only two little loaves. But then the church begins. But then we don't go on into the kingdom of God. There's a stopping place that takes place. After about 100 years, the church goes underground. The great false church rises up. And Satan continues to deceive the world. Because we've got to go till the 6,000 years are up before Christ returns to set up the kingdom. Because the prophecies are dual. See, the prophecies are, so the kingdom's not here yet. Oh, it is in the loaves. It is in, in your life to a certain degree. But, you know, not in its fullness by, uh, by any means. Colossians chapter 3. <clears throat> we've talked about the wave sheaf. We've talked about... Jesus Christ was there Sunday morning not to start a new day. Talked about the fact that the holy days and the Sabbath and all these feasts are very important. Help us. They're to be kept in seasons so we can understand the time order, just like Paul said, you know, each man in his own order. 
because sometimes people got messed up. They, they got the, the orders messed up, and they, they didn't really know. And yet, it's not that we're clinging to the holy days instead of Christ. It's not either or. You see, it's not, okay, we're clinging on to Christ, and then that means you have to turn loose of the holy days. Or you're clinging to the holy days, but then if you've done that, you've turned loose of Christ. It, you know, it's not an either or situation. It, uh, it reminds me of, uh, of the cantankerous mother-in-law who, uh, uh, the guy was always having a hard time with his mother-in-law. He could never make her happy. And so come uh, father or his birthday, she got him a couple of shirts. And uh, so he really agonized over those two shirts because they were supposed to go to dinner and the mother-in-law was going to be there. So he didn't know which one to wear. So he finally picked one and he put it on and he showed up at dinner and she looked at him and said, so, didn't like the other one, huh? <laughs> <laughs> So, you know, these things go together. You know, sometimes you could have thought that perhaps Christ was doing away with some of the laws because Christ said, don't think that. Now, if he says don't think it, it, it means that maybe you might think this. There, there might be some things. You know, I've said it's okay to heal on the Sabbath. I said it's okay to touch someone who's unclean if I'm laying hands on them to heal them. I mean, he does some things. He says, don't think that I'm doing away with the law and the prophets. Not one jot, not one tittle will pass until all be fulfilled. Now, we already saw where he read in Luke, or where in Luke we saw him reading Isaiah, that he only read half the scripture and said, this is fulfilled today. Well, when, did, when was the rest fulfilled? When he was crucified? When he was resurrected? When, when did we inherit the land again? When did we rebuild the waste places? It hasn't happened yet. So Christ hasn't fulfilled everything totally yet. And that can't happen until he returns and takes the kingdom. And all of us, who are those two little loaves, will be helping him rule and reign. That doesn't mean we're superior because most of the people in the church are white. That doesn't mean it's a racist church. It is God's calling. You know, that is the way it happens. So God is beginning to work with us. And in the meantime, the kingdom kind of goes underground, doesn't it? Christ said, I'm a king, but my kingdom's not of this world. And then he turns around, talks to some people, and says, if they persecuted me, they'll persecute you. So the church is sort of, is there, we're preaching the gospel, but we're not involved in politics. We're not trying to force other people to believe by setting a bomb up in Oklahoma City and killing half of the people there to try to, you know, bring our belief here and force, you know, our belief on, on them. Christ said, no, if it was the kingdom, my servants would fight. But then my servants would be resurrected and they would have that wisdom and knowledge and they would be able to fight in the right way, not to punish people or to get vengeance, but to do it to bring about repentance, to do it to um, uh, bring peace and safety to the world. But we see that the wave sheaf is very special because on that day they were to wave this, this, this grain. Now, what that meant was you didn't see every single piece of grain that was harvested. You only saw this one piece of grain, this handful of grain. But if it was okay, then all the rest was accepted. Now, it's much like called a prototype. Now, most of you know that I, I've had a business, and I, do, I am involved with business, and I have a little tool I invented. Now, we send one of those samples out to a store. We sent one to Kmart a couple weeks ago. We sent one to Target. Now, that is like a prototype. They open it up, the guy will open it all up, and he'll look at it. And that is, you know, if it's not good, if there's something wrong with it, he's not going to buy from us, is he? He's going to say, oh, the whole mess is that way. Every, all the stores will have tools that are dirty or crummy or malfunctioning. 
But he opens it up and he says, well, yeah, that's, it works and it's clean and it looks good. And then they write an order off of that tool. They'll say, yeah, that's, that's good. If you'll guarantee that they'll be like this, then I'll take you know, X amount of pieces for each of my stores. So it's, that's very important. That sample, when you send that, it better be right. See, it better be right. Now that's kind of what happens with the wave sheath. Father in heaven is sitting there on his throne, you know, sort of this, visualize this, and Christ shows up. And there Christ is appearing on behalf of mankind. Now this is why in Revelation, I think it's 4 and 5, talks about God sitting on the throne and the lamb looking as though he'd been slain is standing there and is qualified to accept the books. And he begins to reveal Revelation. Now, this is what happens for us. Look at Colossians 3, verse 1. If you be risen with Christ. So when you are baptized, baptism ties in with days of unleavened bread, does it not? Because what does 1 Corinthians 10 say? All of Israel passed through the sea underneath the cloud and were baptized. See, that was this day. This day is when Israel stood on the bank, the water opened up, and they went through and they were baptized. Now, not an individual baptized unto Christ, but like John's baptism, baptism unto repentance, prepared for Christ, see. So they went through. So the same thing. You might read this, if you have gone through the waters on the last day of unleavened bread, you know, kind of ties it all together. If you be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ sits on the right hand of God. Now that's very important because this wave sheath, this prototype of you is sitting at the right hand of God. Well, he, he must have got in the office, huh? It's like someone, a salesman, who takes your tool and he goes to Kmart. If he gets to the right hand of the buyer, you're almost there. You know, he didn't get shut down at the, at the door getting in. I mean, you're, you're right there. So here is our advocate, the one who loved you enough that he said, I'll take a beating, I'll take, you know, being killed, and I'll represent you. I believe enough in you that I'll do that. And so now we've got that individual sitting at the right hand of the Father. So it's not like we've got an enemy up there. We've got somebody who loved you so much that he, he took your death penalty. So it's like, yes, we've got somebody who really counts, somebody who loves us right there. So now when God turns to him and says, what do you got to show me? You know, what kind of life do I have to look at for the future for this person standing in front of me? And Christ says, my life. I appear for him. I appear for her. So it says in verse 3, I'm sorry, verse 2, set your affection on these things above, not on things on the earth, because you are dead, and your life is hid with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then you also will appear with him in, glo in glory. And then he goes on and says, you know, put to death these old things. So, you know, you're putting away sin. We're trying to identify that and getting rid of that. But at the same time, Christ is our life. We'll, uh, <clears throat> let's go to Leviticus 22. And in verse 17, we find out a little bit about this lamb. Now, when they killed the Passover lamb, imagine, if you will, what occurred. All right, you've got your property, and you've got four or five acres, a little bit of fence around behind. You've got your kids there, and you, you say, well, kids, we're going down 
to the market. We're going to the sale, to the auction. So you gather up your kids and you go down. Maybe your maybe your friends, uh, you know, are going to uh, to come and have Passover with you, have night to be observed with you. So remember, you only get one lamb for the whole family. So you say, well, okay, uh, 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 you know, Mrs. Green and Mike and Free, you guys are coming to our place for night to be observed. Okay, so you guys go with us, and we go down, and we pick out a lamb on the tenth, on the tenth of the month. And we go and we pick this one out, and we say, well, we'll take that one. Is he a firstborn? Yes, he is. Is he, uh, you know, yeah, he looks good to me. Okay, but see, he might be lying to us. He might sell us something that's, that's not really, you know, as good as he should be. So that's why you buy him on the 10th. Buy him on the 10th, and now you've got a little rope around his neck, and the lamb, you know, running around and running, hitting the end of the rope, and your kids are dragging him, and one of them says, Daddy, let me lead him, and the other one says, let me lead him, and, you know, and let's give him a name, and, you know, how kids are. They've got an animal. Nothing's cuter than a little baby lamb. And so they're, ah, and he's jumping and kicking, you know, and you're dragging him like a little reluctant dog, you know, whatever. You take him home. You say, well, Mr. Green, will you keep him? Or like, well, we got a place. We'll keep him. Okay. Let's say, we'll see you guys night to be observed. All right, fine. Passover. So we got him over there, and you're feeding him, and you're watching him. And each day you go out and you say, does he have a runny nose? Is he is his eyes watering maybe? Is there a problem? Is there maybe a limp that we didn't know that he had? Because look at Leviticus chapter 22. It says in verse 17, The Lord spoke to Moses, said, Speak to Aaron and his sons and all the children of Israel. Say to them, Whatsoever he of the house of Israel or strangers of Israel that will offer his uh, uh, offerings here, verse 19, offer a male without blemish, whether it's of beef, sheep, or goats. Uh, verse 20, If it's got any blemish, you can't offer it. Then verse uh, 22, If it's blind or broken or maimed or... Uh, he gives, you know, scab, scurvy, he, he lists a bunch of things. Uh, verse 23, if it lacks any parts, there in the middle. Verse 24, you'll not offer that which is bruised or crushed or broken or cut. Um, so he goes through and, and he has some very strict requirements for this offering. Now, that's what we'd be watching because it's not that you know, uh, an animal that, let's say, lost a leg, or maybe out, out west, you know, it gets real cold out west. And a lot of times, cattle's tail will freeze off. The cow's tail will freeze off, and they'll have a tail about that long is all. And a big old swishy tail, it get, if it gets real, real cold, they'll freeze off. And they'll only have a little bitty stubby tail like that. Now, if that was a firstborn, you couldn't offer that as a, as a sacrifice. Now, you know, it eats just as good, just because it can't get all the flies off its back with its tail. You know, the steaks are just as tender. But the thing is, is this pictured Jesus Christ. See, this pictured Christ. So it had to be perfect in that sense. Now, what are we doing? We're watching. Day 11, day 12, kids come home from school. Hey, how's, how's little Freddie the lamb or whatever, you know? Well, Freddie's doing fine. You know, he looks okay. You know, thought he had maybe a little bit of a runny nose. He might be sick, which means we'd have to run down and get another lamb. But he looks like he's okay. Well, along comes the 14th, the morning of the 14th. Kids take off, go to school, come home. It's getting to be sundown. And guess what happens? People start showing up for night to be observed, right? Because you're at the end of the 14th, and they bring all their things. By now, your house is deleavened. Your leavening is put away. Because remember, you're not to offer this sacrifice with any leavening, and you're not to eat any leavening when you eat the Passover, because the Passover is eaten as the meal of night to be observed. So as sun starts to, to get close and, and go down, then we all gather around 
and we say, you know, kids, it's time to go get little Freddy. And you go get little Freddy and you bring him in. Now, you cannot tell me that your kids wouldn't get attached to some little lamb over four days. That little bitty baby lamb jumping and playing and everything, and you got him. And, you know, I won't go into great detail, but I, I myself have butchered over 10,000 horses at the horse plant. So, I, I mean, I, I know what it's like. You know, and those of you who know me, I've told the stories and so forth. But, you know, to hang on to this little lamb and to cut his throat, because that's how you killed him, and him kick and bleed, and, and, and one of the kids holding a basin to catch the blood, and then the lamb stops bleeding and his eyes dull, and he glosses over and he's dead. And so you take the blood and you set it over the side and you start skinning him and taking care of him. You put everything that you took out of the lamb someplace because you've got to burn that totally. You've got to completely make it a total sacrifice. Then you got this little Freddy's blood and you put it on the door. And maybe the kid's crying. No, I don't want to. I don't want to. Do we have to? And you say, like in my house, you say, well, if we don't kill this lamb, then I'm a firstborn. Daddy will die. Alicia's the firstborn, Alicia will die. My wife's middleborn, my son's the secondborn. Um, anybody else? How many firstborns do we have in the room? Look around. We've got quite a few. You'd all be dead. You'd be history. So you look around and you say, if we don't take care of this lamb, honey, we're, we're going to die. And say, so, well, I love the lamb, but, you know, hey, let's kill him. You know? <laughs> I mean, better, than, better the lamb than, than you. But you would appreciate the fact that this little innocent lamb that has done nothing has given its life for us. The, little, the blood, you put it on the door and say, hey, great, dad's still alive, Alicia's still alive, firstborns are alive. And then you eat the lamb and that food you go and leave Egypt on. That's what, because you leave in the middle of the night. And so then you totally burn that sacrifice and it's all gone. You see, that is a powerful, powerful lesson that it would be so easy to begin to explain that Jesus Christ is the Lamb of God. Christ did not have a bone broken. He was a firstborn. He was perfect. He was without blemish. He was without sin. And he was led like a lamb to slaughter, but never opened his mouth. When they accused him by the high priest, he never argued back. He never said, I didn't do that. I never said that. Hey, you got these false witnesses that say, I didn't say that. He just zipped it because he was there fulfilling the role of an innocent little lamb that would be killed not for his own sins, not because this lamb did something wrong, but for to save someone else. What a humbling position to take as God to become flesh and say, I will give my life for my creation. I mean, that's, you, know, you can't understand that without the Spirit of God. That's a mind that is so incredibly um, loving and wonderful that we can't even comprehend it. But that lamb now... As you go into baptism, you say, well, Christ now has appeared for us. Instead of God slaying us for our sins, God is slain Jesus Christ. So we see this perfect sacrifice that Christ, uh, Christ gave. Let's look at uh, 1 John chapter 2, <clears throat> because we find then, during this wave sheaf, it's very important that when the wave sheep takes place in the middle of the Days of Unleavened Bread, what takes place at the end? The baptism, when they go through the water. When you go through that water, it's not the water that makes you clean. We've, always, we've all heard those jokes, you know, well, so-and-so 
you know, took off into a life of sin, I guess when he was baptized, he just got wet. Or he just took a bath. You know, we say things like that. Or you hear people say things like that. Not the water that does it. Not holy water. I baptize people in my hot tub all the time. You know, we burn the sins off of them in Elkhart. You know, we turn the water up and just fry them. But, uh, <laughs> or bubble them off or whatever. <clears throat> but it's not the water. See? In fact is, it's not even the baptism because it's your faith in Christ and the baptism is like the circumcision. Abraham was faithful before he was circumcised. It was just a sign of what had already happened. And when you're baptized, it's not like you're this terrible sinner and then when we put you in, when you come up, you're forgiven. It's, it's something that's basically already happened. God has forgiven you. Now you're just looking for a place to get into some water. And boom, you go in. We lay hands on you. But there have been times I've not been able to baptize somebody in a hospital. See, it's not the magic of the water at all. Now, now, by saying that, we're not saying, okay, no need to be baptized. See, that's the all or nothing. You see, it's got to be like Christ did. He, he didn't do away with the Sabbath, but he said it's okay to heal somebody. It's okay to do this. It's okay if you've got an ox in the ditch. Oh, that means we don't keep this. No, it doesn't mean that. They have to go together. So in first, uh, where was I? First John two twenty-eight. Let's uh, let's start in verse twenty-six. This is interesting because in the new covenant, see, you have God's Spirit on your heart, and that's what leads you with the law of God. You don't need some person to tell you. See, I, I can teach you, I can, I can read you scriptures that you hadn't seen before, and you might go, oh, that's interesting, I didn't put that together. But if I try to put it together in a wrong way, you're going to go, no way. See, it's not the person that does it, it's God and God's Spirit. And that's why the New Covenant, he says, I will write my law in your heart. Not your father, not the high priest, not somebody else. I will do it. And he does it via the Holy Spirit. So, verse 26, these things I've written to you concerning them that seduce you. But the anointing which you've received of him abides in you. You need not that any man teach you, but as the same anointing teaches you all things, and is truth, and no lie. And even as it has taught you, you shall abide in him. Now little children abide in Christ, see in him. Why? That when he will appear, we may be confident and not be ashamed before him at his coming. And if you know he is righteous, you know that everyone that does righteousness is born of him. Now it talks about abiding in him that we may stand. See, when we go before the judgment seat, you're not, and, and this is exactly right, you cannot say, look at my list of commandment keeping. We cannot say, I've done all of these. That is not it at all. You stand in Christ. But because you're in Christ, we obey God. The commandments all go together. So it's not a matter of, okay, well, I obey Christ throughout the commandments. Okay, I obey the commandments, but I throw out Christ. It goes together, and it's always gone together. I don't know where we get this, we were always old covenant. You think you've been old covenant for 50 years? But in that we stand is we stand because we're in, in Christ. Hebrews chapter 9 points it out as well. I might read some of this in the New International. Sometimes it's clear, sometimes it's, <clears throat> it's a little bit uh, cloudier. Hebrews 9.
Verse 24, for Christ did not enter a man-made sanctuary that was only a copy of the true one. He entered heaven itself, now to appear for us in God's presence. See, and, and he came in by, by his blood is what that whole chapter is about. When I was uh, first started rodeoing, I wanted to buy a rodeo horse, a, a roping horse. Uh, Scotty was his name. Good horse, but I didn't have much money. I'd never borrowed any money. Didn't even have it a checking account. I was 18 or 19, whatever. And uh, my cousin, who was a world champion uh, uh, rodeo cowboy, worked in Hollywood, was in Rocky movies and different things involved with them, uh, he taught me about banking. He said, look, here's what we need to do. We need to get you some credit. I, I want to borrow the money to buy the horse. He said, here's what I'll do. I will co-sign for you. Now, I know the banker. I will go in. You fill out the note. You tell him what you want, but I will put my name on the bottom. Now, you know what the banker does? Now, my cousin had perfect credit. It was great. He had, he had a little bit of money in the bank. They knew him. So the banker takes a look at that, and he doesn't even look at me. He could care less about me because if I don't pay the bill, who's going to pay it? My cousin, see? And he had the money, and he had the credit, and so that's who the banker looked at. And he, he wouldn't care who was on there as long as you have a good cosigner. That's kind of what happens. You go before God, and God looks at Christ's bank statement, Christ's signature. If Christ's signature is on there, you're in. See, it, and there's no way that we could get a loan. We cannot cover our sins because what is the, the, the penalty? What is the payment for sin? Death. So we could pay one. I guess we could pay our own death penalty. We could say, yeah, I'm going to pay my own bill. Boom, you're dead. Okay, great. Now what? Well, you can't come back to life. You're dead, you know. Bill's paid, but you're dead. What good does that do? So only through Christ's sacrifice is our bill paid. And so it's like being a, a co-signer, if you will, and that's what this wave sheaf offering is, is that Christ is there, he's accepted instead of us. We are, um, uh, Christ is accepted, and so it's like this, this uh, co-signer. Now, the parable of the Good Samaritan is a lot like that as well, because the, good, the uh, guy is, is knocked down by the robber, and then along comes this individual who is Christ, and sets him up, takes care of him. He puts wa um, uh, oil and wine on the, uh, you know, on the wounds. Oil is like the Spirit of God. Wine is, is like uh, the Passover and forgiveness. And then he takes him to the guy's house, to the innkeeper, and he says, take care of him, and whatever it costs you, put on my account. See? Put it on my account. And that's what happens with our sins. We're not required to pay for them. They're put on Christ's account. Now, like Paul said, does that mean we go sin because grace can abound or because we're not under, under the death penalty, under the curse of the law? Not the, the law is a curse, but under the curse of the law, which is the death penalty. Well, of course not. So it's put on Christ's account, and um, again, the wages of sin is just simply too, uh, too high. Let's close with uh, 1 Samuel chapter 12. <clears throat> I'll try to quit a little bit early here. First chapter, First Samuel, rather, chapter 12. Israel rejected God when they rejected him as their king. When they picked Saul, God was upset with him. He said, you've rejected... Remember, Samuel had his nose out of joint, and God says, don't worry, Samuel. They didn't reject you, they rejected me. And, of course, he knew the day was coming when they would reject Saul. 
the Son of God. They would stumble at the stumbling block. But who was Israel? Out of all of these harvest festivals and these holy days, where would Israel fit in? Well, they were the first fruits. See, they were the first fruits. They were supposed to be this nation that would be so righteous in the letter of the law and ultimately in the spirit of the law, as God's righteousness was made known to them, that other nations would see them and they'd say, what a nation! And they would grab the skirt of one that was a Jew and they'd go up to him. And they would turn loose of their gods and the, and the nations that fought against them would be destroyed. And the ones that, that saw that and learned, they would throw down their gods and they would say, hey, well, teach us. And so they would be the first fruits just the first, then they would spread out through the world. And everybody would then come to, to see that and understand that. Well, that's the wheat harvest. That's the harvest that would take place during the Feast of the first fruits. Now, when they rejected God, God did something that the only way you would understand it is if you understood the Sabbath and the holy days. And that happens in 1 Samuel chapter 12, where they had uh, uh, rejected God uh, because of Samuel, or because of Saul, and verse uh, 1, Samuel said to all Israel, I've listened to everything you said, and I set a king over you, and now you have a king as your leader, and he begins to uh, explain what the king would do, and, and so forth. And then we get down to verse um, 14, if you fear the Lord, and serve and obey him, and don't rebel against these commands, if both you and the king uh, who reigns over you follow the Lord, good. But if you don't obey the Lord, if you rebel against these commands, his hand will be against, be against you as it was against your fathers. Now then, stand still and see this great thing the Lord is about to do before your eyes. Is it not the wheat harvest now? See, right there that very day. Now, when did the wheat harvest happen? This was either the, wheat, uh, the wave sheaf time or it was Pentecost, one or the other. I don't know if it was the beginning of the harvest or the latter part of the harvest. It looks like it was probably the beginning part of the harvest. That harvest pictured them, didn't it? It pictured that they would be harvested. But God showed that they'd rejected him, so he, he's going to teach them a little lesson, but he does it in the season. He wipes out the harvest that pictures Israel. He says, verse 17, Isn't it the wheat harvest now? I will call upon the Lord to send thunder and rain and you will realize what an evil thing you did in the eyes of the Lord when you asked for the king. Then Samuel called upon the Lord in the same day. The Lord sent thunder and rain, so all the people stood in awe of the Lord and of Samuel. And Samuel said, Pray the Lord your God for your servants so that we will not die, for we have added to all our sins the evil of asking for a king. And so God showed what would happen. The very harvest that pictured Israel, boom, was wiped out. Now, what happened later on? They did reject the Messiah, and they were not totally wiped out because they, they don't even know they're a nation anymore. They're lost among the nations, but soon God will bring them out and restore them. But he, he, he took basically the kingdom away from them, and he gave it to us, a nation bringing the fruits thereof. So rather than Jesus Christ showing up Sunday morning, trying to somehow convince us that San, Sunday is the new day of worship, a, appearing to the disciples Sunday evening, it says, uh, when the door was locked because of fear of the Jews. Well, why is that mentioned? The door was locked, and the reason they mention it was locked is because they show that Christ appeared suddenly in the room, and he couldn't have walked through the door because the door was locked. And they said, well, why was the door locked? What were they doing? Well, because fear of the Jews. That's the reason that statement's there. It's not because they were having Sunday services. 
If that's true, then all of the church services should be on Sunday evening rather than Sunday morning. He couldn't have appeared to him earlier than Sunday because he had the wave sheep offering he had to take care of. So it was Sunday afternoon when they were assembled. They had their doors locked for fear of the Jews, and Christ appeared in the room walking through a wall. So he was not resurrected like the other saints or like Lazarus physically. He was resurrected you know, in the spiritual, so he could walk through a wall. He could just show up. This is the reason that's mentioned, not because it's Sunday morning, not because we should turn to that and say, see, Christ was resurrected on Sunday. Christ appeared to the disciples on Sunday. Christ did Pentecost. The Spirit of God came on Sunday. Therefore, Sunday is the day that we should all worship. But the thing is, is when you turn loose of the Sabbath, when you turn loose of the holy days, you turn loose of the plan of God, and your understanding goes out because the lights go out.